0: Initially, when people see rhino, you're taken aback by how prehistoric they are. It's a big animal with horns situated on its head, it's got a wrinkly skin. It's actually quite funny, there's nothing black or white about rhino. They're actually all very grey in appearance. But yeah, I think you're just taken aback by this overwhelming sense of this is a very big animal that if it really wanted to, could do a lot of damage. So I think whenever you do see a black rhino, whether it be any rhino, and no matter how long you've worked with them, um, there's certainly a sense of anxiety and fear. It is quite scary to be close to them. They have a very bad reputation um, for being very aggressive, but I think the one thing that always strikes you when you first meet a rhino is just you have this absolute amount of respect for this animal that's managed to evolve over hundreds of thousands of years and survives despite everything that we, we are doing to them. Because essentially their only real enemies are humans. They have no other natural enemies.
1: Come closer. You won't always be able to get as close as this to a black rhino. Let's get closer until we can speak in the ear of a black rhino at the exact distance chosen by Cathy Dreyer, the one we call the Rhino Whisperer. But Cathy not only whispers, she also hugs, or rather she catches, wild animals, large or small, and she travels on foot, by jeep, by helicopter, through the protected natural areas of her country, South Africa. Above all, Cathy fights. She fights in the field, and in particular, her greatest enemies, poachers, a menace whose magnitude she knows well, since she was appointed head ranger of Kruger National Park, South Africa's largest game reserve. Kruger
0: is a very, very big place. Um, it is obviously um, two million hectares. So from north to south is almost 400 kilometers and from east to west is almost 80 kilometers. So geographically, a very different place. Um, the landscape does change. In the south, obviously, it's um, more sort of bush felt, lots of rivers and things. Um, and then you cross over and you go into Mupani felt, which is just Mupani trees. There's drier parts. Um, and when you get to the far north, you get all the baobab trees, again, the big rivers, the ravines, the gorges that you get. So the landscape is quite different. But I think wherever you go, you're always struck by the remoteness Of some of these places. Um, It's always incredible to fly over the park and I think what again catches you is you can fly for an hour in Kruger and still not be out of Kruger in a helicopter. You can fly and not see anything built up, no big cities or anything around you. Um, I believe there must be many places here where not a single person has ever set foot on.
1: The Kruger Park, is one of the first protected areas created on the African continent. It is by far the largest protected area in South Africa. Being the head ranger of its 2 million hectares, it's a tremendous responsibility. With Kati, we will discover this icon of South Africa. And beyond that, we will also discover her love and dedication for one species, the rhino, and how this love drove her life. You are listening to Wild Basil, the podcast that tells the stories of some heroes that are changing the narrative of a region.
0: I started my career um, working for the Bethany Wildlife Services um, for South African National Parks. And what that basically was, was moving and translocating wildlife all across South Africa, but also Africa. So I spent 13 years doing that, moving everything from small antelope to elephant. That's what I did for a living. And in this time, I I got to spend a lot of time with black rhino, um, specifically black rhino, not white rhino. And yeah, I immediately realized that these were very, very special animals.
1: And rhinos have been special for a long time, around the 10th century of our area a great civilization emerged in southern Africa, just after the fall of the Great Zimbabwe, a kingdom called Mapungumbwe. In 1932, hidden on the royal graves of Mapungumbwe Hills, was found a small statue covered in thin sheets of gold, like those of deities, the statue of a rhinoceros. Perhaps it was to attract their protection, or to appease their furry.
0: In my very early days of working with rhino, um, not really knowing them and understanding them and knowing how to approach a rhino, you often got yourself in very dangerous situations. So I do remember being chased a few times. Well, not chased, more being charged. You know, obviously their reaction is to defend themselves when they get close to you. And often the the only thing that you really can do is try and get out of the way. If you're lucky, there's a tree that you can climb that gives you some safety. When a rhino is charging you, you don't even realize you've climbed a thorn tree on the way up. It's when you have to try and get yourself out of there that you realize what tree So... All of that just disappears into oblivion where you have a sort of a ton rhino charging at you. Um, You don't worry about what kind of tree, whether there's thorns or not thorns or anything. You just find a way to get up there. And the worst part being that they're very inquisitive animals, so they would often hang around that tree for an hour or two trying to figure out what was there, so you'd be stuck up there for a very long time. And gratefully, every time you can laugh about the story around a fire at night and nothing serious happens. But certainly with rhino, they've, they've definitely given me a few scares.
1: This episode is about trust. It's about changes and a new era with the end of apartheid in South Africa. It's about fear and mutual understanding, struggle and pride, passion and commitment. It's the story of Katie Dreyer.
0: So I did grow up in Cape Town, in Grassi Park. Um, It's a very built-up city or town, you know. It's not a, a rural part of Cape Town. It is also not one of the wealthier parts, so it's sort of lower class, middle class, um, people that lived in Grossi Park. Like any parts of Cape Town or um, the outskirts of Cape Town, there's obviously gangsterism and all those sorts of things. But I'll be very honest with you, I didn't have a very happy childhood and I don't really like to talk a lot about But I can just remember in that time I was finishing high school, I was getting ready to study. Obviously, there was a lot of changes happening and I always knew that I wanted to do something involved with nature which was very different to anybody else in my family who had real no interest in sort of wildlife or working with animals. Um, So yeah I think a little bit misunderstood in my love for wildlife and where it came from but yeah people often ask me why did I become in conservation or why did I become involved in wildlife and I can just think that it's a calling and it's something that I've been drawn to um, and it's just where I have found that I fit in, basically.
1: And where Kate had fitted in was in the bush. It gave her home. She committed her life to take care of it.
0: When I was finished with school, I went and studied nature conservation in Cape Town. Um, And that's a three-year course of which one year of that you need to sort of go away and do an experiential year of training. And in that year, I decided to sort of leave Cape Town and I went to Addo Elephant National Park in the Eastern Cape. Um, and I sort of never, ever returned to Cape Town after I did that experiential training year. But it was in Addo where I got introduced to game capture. Um, and it was there that I started working with Rhino and working with the Witney Wildlife Services Unit. And what was supposed to sort of be just a year or two ended up being 13 years of working um, with wildlife, relocating and moving them. So, yeah, you know, it's one thing to sit in a class and learn about all these things. But then to go and live in these places and live with the wildlife is completely different. You know, it's daunting for the first time to drive next to an elephant and it's six times the size of your vehicle. You no longer have neighbours. You know, you don't have to worry about the crime. You worry about the elephant breaking your fence to come and eat your plants or the leopard that's in your garden or the bush babies jumping on the roof at night. You know, your your problems of what stresses and worries you out is a, a lot different than a city. Um, and that's been incredible. I've always said I, I really doubt after 20 years if I'll be able to go and live in a city again. Just living in South Africa, you quickly realize it's very unique in terms of the biodiversity that we have. We just have species and wildlife that you, you wouldn't find in the densities that we have anywhere else in the world. Um, And I think you become a little bit spoiled because that's just normal. Um, It's normal to have such a wide array of species. But certainly when I was growing up in Cape Town, you've become very sheltered from that. And I guess unless you you go on holidays to Kruger National Park or to the bigger parks, you can certainly grow up and not really be aware of that being around you. I, I certainly wasn't aware of sort of all these national parks and wild places while I was growing up. So, I, I certainly think when I started working with the Vietnam Wildlife Services or Game Capture and traveling and moving, that's when you become very acutely aware of what an incredible country we live in and how diversity is. Um, and I think most South Africans don't explore South Africa enough, you know, it's a massive country. Um, even just Kruger, where I live, you know, where I work now in Kruger National Park is two million hectares. So it's the size of Israel. It's bigger than a small country. And that's only one park.
1: To get there, the road was full of thorns and captures, thousands of captures, maybe even more.
0: We have a million stories of catching animals, and I think we all enjoyed one of our most favorite captures was catching giraffe because it's a big animal to catch, it's an awkward animal to catch, it takes a lot of teamwork and coordination, Um, so yeah, lots of laughs and giggles trying to run off and chase down giraffe and load them and move them. it's just a very awkward animal to catch. I mean, you're working with the world's tallest animal. Um, so they, they're they very sensitive to the drugs that you use um, just because they have such long necks. Their, their hearts obviously have to pump their bloods a long way up into their brain. So once you immobilize a giraffe, you kind of have to wake it up straight away. And so you're working with an animal that's fully awake. Um, and to try and manipulate an animal like a giraffe into a truck. takes a lot of skill and handling and rope work and teamwork. um, And you don't always get it right the first time. So, yeah, I think it was just always very challenging capture. Just trying to basically get the the tallest land mammal to fit into a truck and be moved somewhere was always very challenging. Working with wildlife, there's very little that's predictable in your day. There's very little that you can actually plan for and know how things are going to go. Because everything you're working with, you're working with wild animals, you're working with weather conditions that change. You know, everything is just working in a very unpredictable environment. Um, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. So that was very challenging for me to work in an environment where you you literally don't know what you're doing from moment to moment. To moment. Um, we were a very small team of people that worked together um, and in working together you know you work together, you eat together, you sleep together, you live together because we it involved a lot of travel. So we spent a lot of time moving between the different parks across South Africa um, and always in this very set small team of about 13 people. So very much became more of a family than anything else um, because it is dangerous work. So you really rely and you need to trust the people that you are working with, from the helicopter pilots to the vets. Um, And so I think it just developed into a family with time.
1: In the wild, Cathy created a new family and learned how to bond and build trust with wild animals.
0: To take a a very, very wild black rhino out of the bush that has never seen a person, never smelt the fuel of a vehicle, never heard noises, um, everything is unfamiliar to them. And you're basically putting them in a box and trying to make them tame enough so that you can move them, sometimes 48 hours, sometimes longer, to all these different places. I soon realized that that was going to be very challenging. Um, So in some of the first black rhino work I did, um, I had to figure out how to tame these animals. So how do you take this completely wild animal that is terrified, that doesn't know what is happening to it, and get it to essentially to trust a person? Um, And I did this by just talking to them and reading to them.
1: That is maybe why she became known as a rhino whisperer. Can you imagine yourself reading novels to a three-ton creature to soothe them and bond with them? Does it work? Why would one want to read novels to a three-ton scared and jittery creature?
0: So they learn to recognize your voice and they learn to recognize your smell and after a while you develop a trust with them and it actually doesn't take that long. Um, you can take a completely wild animal from the bush and within ten days have them eating out of your hand. Um, I used to think it's because they just absolutely love you, but I think they' are such intelligent animals that they very quickly realise where food and water and comfort comes from. So they kind of accept you um just because they realise that that's what they have to do.
1: You become responsible forever for what you have tamed. This sentence could have been written about Katy and the rhinos.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really enjoy reading biographies. Um, I enjoy books, anything about wildlife to do. And yeah, still, reading is something that I've always been passionate about. So that's why it was easy to sit and read to rhinos, whether they be stories about David Attenborough or wildlife explorations or things like that. Um, reading is certainly a, a place where I can sort of get away and and switch off from everyday life in Kruger and sort of have a little bit of a fantasy world. I'm, I'm certainly a self-confessed workaholic, so I've, I've never had a family. I'm not married or anything. It's all just been about work, work, work. Um, so I think reading, luckily, the rhino enjoyed it and it was something that I was very passionate about.
1: And maybe, just as all of us, rhinos enjoy a good storytelling. Or maybe it's just the attention Of taking the time to be with them.
0: No, I think it's not really about reading. It's more the tone of your voice. I think if I had to be screaming, it would be different. It's just the tone of your voice. They enjoy listening to music, so just putting a radio on. You know, it's just to constantly get now used to a different human noise. That was all. It was just about this monotonous voice the whole time that, yeah, after a while, it's just, you gotta accept it. Um, You have no choice, basically.
1: Now imagine, this relationship you have taken the time to create is threatened. Rhinos are now in South Africa and actually globally in danger. This danger has a name, poaching. And for Katy, who reads to the rhinos, who can whisper to them, each of those losses are impossible to forget.
0: I certainly remember the first three rhino that I know of that got poached um, at the place where I worked in at the time. Um, What hit me the hardest was just the brutality and what these animals had to endure. You know, it was an adult rhino with its sub-adult calf, and then it had a six-month-old calf. And when we had found them, the six-month-old calf was still alive, but they had... Hacked. It's horn it's was really tiny. Obviously, it was very small. So they had basically with an axe chopped into its face until it was only its nasal bones exposed. Um, and you could see its tongue through the top of its head, but it was alive. Um, and it was trying to breathe. Mother was dead. Its older sister was dead, but this little one was still alive. I think you just, you get to see what people are capable. You don't want to believe that another human being wants to inflict so much pain and suffering on an animal. Um, But you quickly realize that people do. Um, So I think you hit by, you know, not only knowing the animals, those were animals we actually knew and we had known them for a number of years. So you obviously have a personal connection to these animals. But to try and imagine at that time what those three animals must have Endured, and I think also that we as humans are capable of inflicting such um, horrible pain on something else as yeah, very disturbing. In recent years, a lot of rhino or rhinos that are injured or rhino that have been orphaned as a result of their mothers being killed by poachers. So these animals from the beginning have a very bad connotation to humans. Their first experience with a human is a horrific one. It's a little calf by its mom's side hearing its mom screaming while its horn is being hacked off sometimes when they're alive. So the fact that these animals can then after so much time and after everything that they've been through Learn to, again, trust another person, I think, is incredible. And I've recently just um, had one of an animal like that in 2017, and we affectionately named her goose, um, And she was caught in Kruger, where I'm now based, um, And when we caught her, she had um, been shot through the foot, and in trying to survive, she'd basically walked the sole of a foot off and she was walking on the bones. Everything was exposed. Um, we weren't quite sure at that stage whether we could do anything for her, but we decided to catch her um, and put her into a holding pen and see if we could treat her. Um, and she was a very difficult rhino because you can only imagine she was not trusting of people. She had lived a long time in agony and in pain, just trying to make it through the day. But slowly we managed to win her trust over and with a lot of effort and help and almost two years um, of getting all sorts of people involved. We were able to make casts for her foot, develop boots that we worked with guys who did prosthetics um, to a point where she's now still in a rehabilitation center, but she's able to walk again on that foot and is slowly growing her soul back. Um, So, yeah, I think... I'm just always taken aback just by how intelligent they are and how trusting they are of us, and um, irrespective of what their experiences with humans are.
1: The poaching of rhinos holds up a cruel mirror. Rhinos almost entirely disappeared in the 1920s. They were brought back from the brink of extinction to a healthy population in South Africa. Dr. Ian Player was one of the people who ensured their survival with the help of the sanctity of a royal Zulu hunting ground that became South Africa Shlustue Umfulos National Park. Some say that it's thanks to this successful effort that there is such an effect for the rhino today in the country. We say history has no memory. The rhinos would say it's true. At the start of the 21st century, the threat on them is back.
0: In Kruger, it started in 2008 or in South Africa. Um, very small still, you know, you were losing 10, 20, 50 rhino a year um, and escalated to the point in 2014, 2015 where we were losing over 1,000 rhino a year across the country. Um, in Kruger alone, I think there's been over 7,000 rhino that have been poached since then.
1: This dramatic increase was due to the fresh demand for rhino horn from Southeast Asia. Rhino horn is an ingredient used in traditional Asian medicine, said to cure a myriad of ailments, including cancer. Powerful myth. Destructive myth. In spite of zero evidence that rhino horn has any medicinal property, people are willing to inflict horror just for a bit of that powder. The horror that only the ones on the ground witness. And this violence is leaving its mark.
0: The violence has definitely escalated in recent years as a result of um, the demand for wildlife products. So obviously as the wildlife products and the resources become less and less, their value escalates um, and people will go to great lengths for that. So a, a very good example is rhino. Um, where rhino warn is now of more value than, you know, the animal's weight in gold, pro- um, basically. And, you know, the times have changed where you're a field ranger and you're walking in the fight looking at birds and monitoring animals, you know. Now you have to really be careful. You're armed, you expect to be in armed contacts, you expect to be shot at. Um, people will kill you for rhino worn and for resources. A field ranger's job hasn't changed from what it was 20 years ago. Our main focus is still conservation. Um, Unfortunately, on top of that, we've had to become more militant. Um, So it is the same person, the same person whose life was more about monitoring and doing conservation, has now had to conform and change, um, and not by choice. And in some way, you're taking people who are... Actually, I think quite soft people by nature. You know, you've chosen to work in conservation, you've chosen to work with wildlife, um, you have a love for the environment, um, and now that environment is turned into a war zone, and you've had to learn how to adapt to it. 20 years ago, when I worked in wildlife, you know, I didn't think I would have to deal with so many armed contacts, people dying. We've had field rangers that have been killed in the line of duty. It's a very different. Um, environment to work in now you know now we have legal counseling we have psychologists on standby to assist our rangers when they are in contacts you know all of those things 20 years ago was, was not part of a job when you studied conservation it was all very romantic and amazing to live in the bush um, and to walk between the flowers and work with wildlife and yeah it's, it's certainly not that romantic anymore as it used to be. I think the other hard thing is that that comes with a lot of criticism so there's a lot of criticism international criticism that we have become militarized in the way that we are doing things um and we're no longer conservationist we are like people who are at war but that has not been by choice you know we've always had to look after the biodiversity of these parks um And we need to respond. So as the threat escalates, we've got to respond to that. And if we're not responsible in now training our rangers um, to be basically soldiers, then it would be irresponsible of me as a manager to be able to put them out there. So we unfortunately need to give people those skills because they still need to look after the environment. And that's rhino, that's elephants, that's the... Illegal harvesting of fish or plants or wood, um, and the pressure just becomes more and more.
1: Eventually, rangers arm themselves. But the war is not fought on even ground.
0: I always like remind myself that you're trying to manage a place the size of Belgium. You know, if Belgium had a war, what would the size of its army be, and what would the resources be allocated to try and protect Belgium? And we certainly don't have those resources within a conservation environment.
1: Resources, it's a key word for people living on both sides of the fences of the park. The demand for rhino horn drives the poaching, but this war is uneven because this demand brings money. A lot of money. You have one of the largest national parks in the continent, bordered by millions of people that are poor and under pressure. How can Katie and her team deal with this impossible situation?
0: Most of the communities along parks are very impoverished communities. So if I take, for example, Kruger, where I am now, we have over two and a half million people that live on the boundary of Kruger. A lot of those people have no access to any municipal services, so no running water, no electricity, um, no formal housing. So people live in severe poverty. um, And when you're trying to make ends meet and put food on the table, and you just look across the fence, um, and there's an abundance of wildlife. There's rivers with fish, there's game, there's meat. There's um, trees that can be cut down to provide wood. There's medicinal plants. So I think from very early on, there's always been pressure on our natural resources. And when you start working in these environments, you very quickly realize those pressure. So our jobs are to protect the biodiversity, the law enforcement and the conservation of it. Um, and in doing that, you've got to enforce the law and that comes with consequences. So. Our interactions, as much as you want them to always be positive and we want to encourage communities, unfortunately, in the position that we are, a lot of our interactions with communities are negative interactions because we're trying to protect the biodiversity that they are trying to get their hands on. So it makes it very difficult to manage the expectation.
1: And it's difficult indeed, because the communities surrounding the Kruger can't always benefit from its wonders.
0: You know their interaction with wildlife again—it's negative. It's the elephants that break out to go and eat their maize crops, and um, it's the lions that break out to go and eat their cattle or destroy their goats, which is their only livelihood. So it's all a very negative connotation. Um, so certainly we've got to change that, um, but there also needs to be a benefit. We very quickly realise that. If people don't benefit from the parks, why would they want to look after them? Why would it matter and why would it be important? Previously, parks were seen as being very exclusive to only a certain group of people who could actually afford to either travel or stay in the parks. But in recent times, there's been a lot of work in trying to to bring the local communities that actually live on the borders of the park, but don't see the benefits of the park. I think another major challenge for us is unfortunately corruption. So, as we've gotten better at looking after Rhino, the syndicates that poach them have had to infiltrate and use our own staff to get information. And I think that's that's really been demoralising for the team. I think there's nothing worse than somebody who's been part of the team for a very long time. Having to find out that that person is given vital information, um, and they don't necessarily need to pull the trigger and shoot the rhino, but providing information on where deployments are, where rhino are, when people have gone shopping for the day, when the helicopter's broken, um, facilitating poachers coming in, bringing firearms in, taking firearms out. Um, It's been really demoralizing for the team to find out that someone that you work so closely with and someone that's been employed to look after the environment has now become a traitor of source. And so that's become a very, very difficult thing to manage. Um, Understanding that, you know, you live... I stop living communities where their families are and their families get threatened while they're at work. So it's not that easy as saying, don't get involved. You know, what would you do if your family's life was at risk? Um, just for a little bit of information. So we've had to focus a lot on sort of how to stem corruption, putting incentives in place. Because what is the incentive to be a field ranger? We don't earn a lot of money in conservation. We are certainly not here to to get rich you know people always say we get paid in sun sunrises and sunsets you know that's our payment but we certainly don't get paid a lot of money, so why do we want to stay honest when it's hard and people want to kill you and you can get charged by animals? So we've had to look at rewards and incentive to try and keep people honest. So certainly are very, very challenging, um, but also a lot of good things. You know, People focus on the dead rhino and the corrupt rangers, but incredible people that work in the parks, um, people that still dedicate their life to conservation. Um, And really, we are incredibly fortunate to live in this environment.
1: And among those who devote themselves, body and soul, to this mission, Cathy has shown herself to be so upright and determined that she has therefore been entrusted with a great, what am I saying, an immense responsibility.
0: I certainly, no, did never imagine that I would be the head ranger of Kruger. I did work here in 2017 for two and a half years and then left and yeah, never ever envisioned that I, I would be in this position, um, and it's still very daunting and scary at times, but it, it really is an incredible privilege. So I've been the head ranger for Kruger for just over a year now, um, and yeah, it's been a, a very big change for me. I, it was a hard decision, you know. I've always been a very operational person, so I've always wanted to be the one who gets their hands dirty. Obviously, it's an incredible honour. You know, I think being the head ranger of Kruger is maybe something that all all rangers aspire to. And yeah, I mean, I knew that it was going to be difficult. I didn't come here thinking that it was going to be all roses and smooth sailing. I often think, why did I put myself in this position? I'm certainly not not ready to not be an operational in-the-bush person. Um, I'd like to think that I want to put good systems in place, that if somebody else comes, they can just take over. Where to from next? You know, it's a very difficult thing because there's there's one head ranger in South African National Parks, and now I am that head ranger. So where do you aspire to next? I, I think... I'm happy to go anywhere as long as I know that I'm making a very big contribution and a valuable contribution. Hopefully I'll still be in this position for a long time to come, um, but I'm certainly looking forward to the day where I can just explore more um, and just yeah, get back to why I actually wanted to be in conservation.
1: And what adds to the admiration and also at times to criticism is that the new head ranger of this flagship natural park of South Africa is a woman.
0: It's always difficult being a female. It's a very male-dominated career. It's still ease these days. Um, So you obviously have to work a lot harder to to sort of prove yourself, and specifically when you're working in a physically demanding job with wildlife, um, where everything can hurt or possibly kill you. Um, Because my career was not just driving through a park and looking at animals. It was actually physically catching them, handling them, moving them. Um, yeah, it was intimidating. It really was. But I, I very quickly learned that if you work hard and you do your best, it's irrespective of gender, of who you are, um, people will respect you. Um So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a trying time, as it is for anybody who sort of leaves home and starts a new career. But it's difficult when your career is the bush far away from friends or anything that's familiar to you. Um, It was very challenging, um, but very rewarding at the same time. I think there are, are lots of women in conservation, but in sort of law enforcement, the numbers are still really, really Um, low. Um, If I just look at Kruger, we are 2 million hectares and we have 22 sections. And each section is managed by a section ranger. So within that, currently, we have two female section rangers out of the 22. But it's not a conducive environment to having a family life. And so I think even though women might want to choose it as a career, it's a very hard career to fit in because the career doesn't bend. There's no flexibility and maybe we need to do more work on making the environment more conducive. Um, to women. We do have a lot of women obviously in the other sectors, whether it's scientific services or tourism or hospitality um, but specifically in ranger services being deployed in the field it's still very small number um, and I just think it's just the work conditions are still not not 100% conducive to being accommodating to that
1: But the Bush School thought Cathy may be the most valuable skill for her job
0: I think the one thing a has taught me is that you need to have a very thick skin in life. You really do just need to have a thick skin and take things as they come. Um, I think it's okay to be grumpy and it's okay for people to think you're grumpy. A lot of it just comes out of misunderstanding. And I kind of like to be misunderstood. But I think the biggest lesson they've taught me is just to have a thick skin. Um, And that thick skin is what has allowed them to survive through some of the worst times that we are currently going. But I I think they teach you a lot about patience. Um, They teach you a lot about trust. Like I've said, that's the biggest thing that always gets me is that most of their first experiences with humans are some of the worst experiences any animal would have to endure. They see, how, they see the worst and the most cruel part of humans, yet they can develop a trust with you afterwards and accept you. Um, and I think, yeah, that kind of just shows that there's, there's always a bit of a silver lining in things, and you always need to just reach for the positive in things.
1: Wild basil. A podcast produced by Mover. Funded by AFD. Written by Louise Guimarães-Sherry Navarro, and Martin Kennan. Music by Carson Mucavelli. Historical advisor, Stephanie Erdang. Scientific advisor, Gislin Rib. Recording, Carson Studio Maputo, and Pipoca Sound, Rio de Janeiro. Directed by Martin Kennan. Find us on movamos.co.mz